The Black Scourge ravaged Europe, and the great cities were destroyed. Survivors flooded north where Viking longboats ferried them to the New World. As the trail of refugees grew, so too did the ships, and soon massive multi-decked Viking galleys trolled the wine-dark seas, building medieval cities along every coast. I'm Jordan Harbour. Come join me at the Twilight Histories podcast, where you will experience exotic worlds like this one, worlds that never existed in our timeline. An Aztec empire built by Spanish steel, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, and Egypt that never fell. Listen with the lights off and allow the images to take you away. Listen to the Twilight Histories podcast. Wait a second, what was that? Well, actually, uh, it was a promo. It was a promo for a podcast I recently discovered thanks to its very generous host, Jordan Harbour, up in Canada, Northern Neighbors. Please don't hold my Americanness against me. He runs a podcast, like I said, called Twilight Histories. And honestly, it's like really cool stuff. It's really cool stuff. And I mean, in case you couldn't really tell, there's a lot of really cool production going on there. Not not to mention, I'm always going to be suckered in by use of music from The Shining. So there's that. But I, I from what I can gather from what I've been listening, and I've and I've been listening to a fair bit of it. And actually, I just noticed today as of this recording, the, the next episode, the next series is called Cons in England. The idea, uh, it's basically counterfactuals, but sort of mixed with fiction, which is really cool to me as someone who likes both quite a bit. And in this case, it's what if the Mongols made it to England? That's just, that sounds so cool to me as a concept alone. But I've already listened to a few of the episodes and it's really great. I highly recommend you guys check out Twilight Histories. And thank you again to Jordan Harbour for this opportunity to cross-promote our podcasts. And with all that said, let's let's get on with this show. And hello, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades and friends. We are back already for another regular episode of History Impossible. We'll be getting to that in a moment. This bit of housekeeping is very necessary because thanks to, well, a couple things. One, for whatever reason, a lot of you really loved Werewolves of the Fourth Reich. And granted, I think... World War II in general is just sort of catnip for history fans like myself. I mean, I can totally understand. But also, Daniele Bellelli, friend of the show, has been kind enough to make one of his free episodes on his regular podcast feed on iTunes, the one that he and I collaborated on earlier this year about Lady Death, the Lady and Her Gun, Ludmila Pavlichenko, Soviet Sniperess, which I don't think is a word, but there you go. Uh, That is on iTunes. You guys can check it out who have not checked out Luminary, though I do recommend that because then you get to listen to his incredible Sitting Bull series that is unfolding. Episode 2 just dropped today as of this recording. So I highly recommend you check out The Lady and Her Gun regardless. I believe he's going to be dropping another conversation with the great Dan Carlin either... I don't know if it's going to be the beginning of November or late November. I'm not sure when, but it's happening in November at some point from what it sounds like, from what he's told me. So uh, there's been some growth, and because of that growth, I started a Patreon. 
You heard that right. I finally did. Now, a lot of you listening have probably already seen it. Some of you have probably even already donated. But for those of you who haven't already seen it, it is www.patreon.com slash historyimpossible. Very simple. You can go over there, check out the different levels you can support the show at, whatever works for you. If nothing works for you, that is fine too. I am happy to continue making this show. But if you have the ability and desire to support the show via Patreon, there are many options available for you with goodies at every level from getting your name mentioned in the liner notes as a, as a sign of thanks, to getting your name said at the end of every episode as a sign of thanks, to getting your name said at the front of every episode as a sign of thanks, depending on what level you support the show at, as well as other goodies, including shirts, mugs, all that good stuff. A lot of really good stuff there. But also, that is where the pop quiz, the really fun, silly pop quiz series that Miss Molly Pan and myself do, is now a Patreon exclusive for people supporting the show at the $5 level. So, with that all said, I have to thank a patron. Because I have an incredibly generous patron of the show already at the $50 level, which gets him a place at the front of every episode now, because he is now officially a producer on History Impossible. Not the producer that cuts the show together, that's me, but a producer of the show on Patreon. His name is Elias Barota. I am really hoping I am getting that name right, but he is a fan of the show. He wants to support it. He runs his own podcast, actually, called Kill the Judge, which... I just love it in principle because he is making an awesome Cormac McCarthy reference with that. But anyway, thank you to Elias Barota for being a producer on History Impossible. Also, remember to hit up iTunes and rate, review, especially review, and subscribe, most importantly, to History Impossible on iTunes if that is your platform of choice. The reviews really help, especially if they're five stars. And they... um, They really help with the show's growth. So, with all that said, let's get on with the show. This is actually the second part of the unofficial World War II trilogy I'm doing to close out 2019 and the first year of History Impossible's run. It's my wheelhouse. And the last one, Werewolves of the Fourth Reich, which many of you listened to, was, to say the least, pretty heavy, pretty epic in scope. This one has been scaled back in scope quite a bit, but has probably been amped up in terms of its heaviness by many times over. And frankly, there's just no way to avoid that when you're talking about what I'm going to be talking about, which, consider this your fair warning, it's about the Holocaust. Not the happiest of topics, I'm fully aware. But it's a very important one. And this story... Well... It's not going to make you feel good. I make that warning actually a couple times in the episode, but it's it's really not going to make you feel good. So consider that your fair warning too. But it'll make you think and feel things. That's what I'm hoping. So why don't we get on with it and get into some impossible history? Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The European Russians are the outrotten of the Judenhof in Europa. One who knows 
have another war to utterly destroy the civil thousand years. I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is in sight. I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who flavor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. This is History Impossible. This summer, around the beginning of August 2019, I took a trip to Baltimore with Molly to see her cousin graduate from business school, grad school. Seeing as neither Molly nor her mother nor her aunt had ever been to Washington, D.C., and I hadn't been there in literally over two decades since I was a kid, we decided to make the 45-minute drive over to the nation's capital and take in some of the sights. After leaving the Lincoln Memorial, we made a left as we faced the Washington Monument, making our way through a scrub of trees and a shaded path. It wasn't because of the heat of the sun, though that certainly helped. It was because I wanted to see something I hadn't seen since I was last in our nation's capital, and that was the Vietnam War Memorial. Despite its relatively small stature, especially compared to the rest of the monuments scattered all over the 146 acres of the D.C. Mall, it contains probably one of the most powerful statements of loss in America's short history. Waste of life, sacrifice, whatever your view on that war and its combatants, that knife-shaped monument quite figuratively cuts through that debate to remind everyone looking at it that regardless of your worldview, that what you're looking at is the grand embodiment of loss for the United States. And it was this embodiment of loss that reminded me of something. I had never seen one of, if not the most powerful memorial, the most powerful embodiment of loss in Washington, D.C. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, a place I was far too young and far too easily bored, frankly, to understand and appreciate when I first visited D.C. 20 years ago. My only goal on that trip was, frankly, to see the Star Wars exhibit at the Air and Space Museum. (laughs) Realizing this time, though, that we had several hours before we had to meet a family friend at a well-regarded and, as it turned out, delicious French restaurant over in Georgetown, Le Chez Billy, I believe is what it was called, I promptly told Molly that I wanted to finally see the Holocaust Museum. I mean, she knows how much I care about World War II and the Holocaust. She's a a good sport, in case you guys couldn't tell from her doing the pop quizzes with me. And being that understanding champ that she is, as well as someone who knows better than to deliberately make themselves miserable like I was about to do... Uh, She actually took her mother and her aunt to the Smithsonian, and I put down the mere dollar it takes to reserve a time to see the museum's exhibits. Like many people, though sadly not like two-thirds of millennials, according to a semi-recent poll reported by the Washington Post, the Holocaust and its horrors has always held a special place for me. 
And before you write me an angry email or comment about how insensitive or creepy or weird that might sound, you need to realize that I mean it places me in awe only because of the evil it represents in history. It's the logical endpoint of hate itself. It's the modern apex of human horror, basically. And the Memorial Museum in D.C. will put you through that realization as bluntly and as honestly as anything can, short of, hopefully, this episode you're about to listen to. I don't think me giving you a play-by-play, minute-by-minute walkthrough of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum would either do the museum, its mission, or its exhibits anything resembling justice. You just need to see it for yourself. But I want to tell you what I saw, which, despite taking several classes and reading many books and seeing many films on the subject all throughout my adult life, I was not wholly prepared for what I saw and experienced. I want to describe my experience as I remember it, as we all remember things, in fragments of images and sensations and emotion. The chill that went through my shoulders as I stared at the defaced wooden storefront inscribed in Hebrew, scratched out by angry Germans swept up in rabid, mouth-frothing populist hysteria during the pandemonium of Kristallnacht and the knowledge of where that would eventually lead. My inability to stop myself from an ironic chuckle, laughter being my initial defense mechanism when encountering pain, terror, and cruelty. When I saw the sign that greeted the victims on the way to death, or the slight delay of death provided by slave labor as they arrived at Auschwitz, as well as virtually every other well-known death camp in Nazi-occupied territory. Arbeit macht frei or work sets you free, bridging across the walkway. The slow-building disgust rumbling within my guts as I stared at the scale model of Auschwitz, the line of prisoners pouring from the train car past the gesturing, shouting SS men, the undressing rooms, the chamber filled with piles of bodies, writhing and grasping at the air and other bodies in agony like a mass of worms wriggling in the dirt. The abject emptiness, I felt, as I stared at the raggedy tree stump that served as a marker for a mass grave of Jews who had been shot through the back of their heads into the very pit this piece of wood haphazardly was marking. My breathing becoming short and ragged as I looked at two fragments of false teeth pulled from the ashes of one of the bodies incinerated in the crematoria furnaces of Auschwitz basically bits of acrylic resin, plastic, possibly ivory, representations of humanity being the only thing that survived the flames. The rage-induced lump I can barely swallow as I read the form-letter-esque response from the military representative written back to the Jewish-American organizations petitioning for a bombing run to be made against Auschwitz in 1944, stating that it was not considered a priority target despite such a bombing run undoubtedly being able to preserve future lives from succumbing within the gas chambers. The shock, despite already knowing about this famous exhibit that I still felt as I saw the thousands and thousands of shoes 
all lumped together into one mass, surrounding both sides of the walkway, the only indication of what we, the visitors, were looking at being the poem by Moses Schulstein inscribed on the wall. Quote, We are the shoes. We are the last witnesses. We are the shoes from grandchildren and grandfathers, from Prague, Paris, and Amsterdam. And because we are only made of fabric and leather and not of blood and flesh, each one of us avoided the hellfire. Unquote. And the angry, inescapable reinforcement of certainty, I felt that God, at least a just and loving God, or a God that cares for human affairs, whether sitting atop his cloud with a big white beard or living in the ill-defined fever dreams of Jungian apologists rambling about the collective unconsciousness, the certainty that I felt that any God worth looking to in times of suffering and pain does not exist, especially after I read the infamous words by Elie Wiesel as I left the museum. Quote, Never shall I forget those flames which consume my faith forever. Never shall I forget that nocturnal silence which deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Unquote. I left the museum right when it was closing and stepped back into a really hot D.C. sun. It just hadn't abated. It was very hot that day. And I couldn't help but question my own emotional reactions to things. Sitting here, standing rather, in my de facto recording studio of my closet in Los Angeles months later, I still question my feelings about these things, as I was just reading them out to you just now. I mean, frankly, who am I to feel anything that didn't, directly at least, affect me or my life? Then I remembered my first true, real exposure to the Holocaust, meeting a Russian-Jewish survivor when I was in high school, one of my classmates' grandmothers, and whose name I unfortunately can't recall, otherwise I would pay homage. She did the usual, showing us her tattoo, telling the horror story of being crammed into a cattle car, of the horrible camp conditions, the slave labor. But she did two very important things in addition to all that. She told us that there were no wrong or bad questions that can be asked by anyone who didn't experience the Holocaust firsthand, prompting us to finally feel comfortable enough to start raising our hands. And that as long as we feel something, anything, regarding what happened to her and the others who lived to tell the tale, and the 11 million other people who succumbed to the Shoah that were then doing our job, were keeping the memory alive. She didn't elaborate, but I think she was trying to tell us that such abject horror doesn't give her or anyone a monopoly on the suffering of humankind. It's provided us with a compass for suffering, and if we can understand that compass, we're doing our job as human beings. That's what she was trying to say. She was trying to say that we're not like them, those that threw the compass away and built gas chambers for humans as if they were an 
infestation of insects. Here's the thing. What I saw at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, the things that you might have seen on my Instagram, or what you remember me telling you just now, were only pieces at a museum. They were real, yes. They were seen, heard, felt, and experienced by people, by real people, who are now bones and dust. But they were still just displays. My audiovisual exposure to these things lack the horrifying details that just can't and probably shouldn't be replicated within the safety zone of a museum. The people who lived through this horror, for lack of a better term, got used to it, and it really is the ultimate you-had-to-have-been-there kind of thing to really get the sense of what they went through. We can try, for sure, and we should. That's why we talk to survivors and have them talk to us, and why we read about these things. However, there's a helpful angle for us to examine the Holocaust that is surprisingly understudied. The horrifying details that you might have seen on my Instagram, the horrifying details that I mentioned were things the inmates, survivors, and victims lived with. We're just visitors to those details. That's why I've become interested in the horrors experienced by the men who were exposed to them for the first time as they entered the gates of the death camps and how they reacted to them. As we walk through a museum like the United States Holocaust Museum, we're basically cosplaying as the liberators of the camps. We're getting a facsimile of what they experienced. But like them, we were only visitors to this horror. Like many of us walking through the museum, they were learning about these horrors as they encountered them, as they liberated the camps, these soldiers. But the difference is that they were experiencing them actually firsthand, often as a complete surprise to a lot of them. And they were hit from all directions, all of their senses firing at once as they witnessed the true depths of carnage and suffering of what human beings can inflict upon one another. These things you don't experience in the museum, the weight of fighting and killing and seeing your friends killed already heaped on your shoulders, that's one. The eerie silence that only seems loud because of how much noise you've been experiencing, that's two. The sight is similar to what we see 
in the video footage and the photographs, the hip bones having burst through the skin, the faces that look like skulls, the agony in every corpse's expression. But now imagine that it's not a two-dimensional representation in black and white. The corpses are right there in front of you, right now, right this second, outside of your car, on the floor of the train you take to work, next to the treadmill you're running on at the gym. That's three. And four, the smells. Arguably the most powerful aspect of this nightmare that just can't be replicated, and again, probably shouldn't. Every single soldier who liberated the camps and who talked about their experiences doing so talked about the smells in their memoirs, their letters home to their parents and their diaries, the smell of mildew, feces, death. The porta potties at music festivals, they don't do these kinds of smells justice from what I can imagine. And neither does the rat decaying in your apartment wall, though that can provide you maybe a little bit of a nice facsimile. Those smells are basically teasers. What you're experiencing is an exponent, many times over an exponent, of those unpleasant smells. Limp, rotted cabbage, rotten eggs, feces, mothballs, old meat, all thanks to the buildup of hydrogen sulfide, dimethyl sulfide, and other foul natural gases. The human brain reacts to the smell of rot and decay very strongly, as anyone who's found expired food in their fridge can probably attest. It's a natural evolutionary development that's protected us from consuming or even getting close to something that most likely would make us sick because it's carrying some kind of disease. And that's made us particularly sensitive to the smells produced by death. And while there are practical, again, evolutionary reasons for this, it's also arguably produced our psychological reactions to the symbols of death and even contributed to our overall fear of it. So imagine being one of these men, one of these American GIs, who likely have all of this neurological structure built into their brains, this disgust response, and suddenly you're hit from every direction, through every sense, especially your sense of smell, and you realize that this mass degradation of humanity has taken place. When a man sees and experiences all of this, how does he react? How does he feel and how does he express those feelings? How could he possibly react to something he had never, perhaps could never, imagine? Even in his darkest, most eldritch quarters of his mind. A young corporal named Charles Wilson was one of the first Americans to witness the atrocities of the Nazis in April of 1945. He was a deeply religious kid working as a chaplain's assistant in the 46th Armored Medical Battalion in the Americans' 4th Armored Division. He'd been through months of fighting, and as he and his fellow comrades approached their next objective, he was actually feeling pretty relaxed. This was Germany in the springtime, after all. He would admit that it was his religious convictions that helped him feel such a profound sense of optimism about both the war itself and the global brotherhood that could only result after such a destructive conflict that had killed so many of his buddies and his enemies. He saw it as a time of resurrection, 
Then he saw what he was liberating. A concentration camp known as Ordruf, primarily a place of Nazi slave labor that had experienced mass liquidations on the part of the retreating Germans. Wilson would later write in his diary, quote, We see evidences of inconceivable human brutality, clumps of human debris, piled high and spread out in grotesque array, men and women revealing evidences of long-lasting starvation in their emaciated bodies, systematically shot through the head. Unquote. The most striking thing that Wilson would remember seeing as he and his fellow soldiers liberating the camp was a ditch filled to the brim with these starved bodies, some executed with shots to the head and others who probably simply died of disease or starvation. Apparently some of the bodies had had gasoline poured on them and burned, but for whatever reason the rest just didn't catch fire, suggesting a haphazard rush job, the kind that only really happens when you're disposing of something you don't see as evidence worth covering up or, frankly, as a human being. While Wilson simply tried to fight off fainting or vomiting, whichever would come first, a comrade of his, a member of the tank crew, stood looking over the hundreds of corpses. Wilson would remember that this man dug his fingernails into his palms to the point that they started bleeding, recalling, quote, a stigmata in which bleeding anger fights with the knowledge of the awesome, unjust suffering of others. Unquote. After this comrade left, Wilson just continued staring into the pit until he could no longer accept the horror of what he was seeing in human, earthly terms. He fell to his knees with a sharp, prolonged wail. Weeping uncontrollably, he clasped his hands together and recited every prayer that he could think of, begging his Lord to give him something, anything, that would help him understand such heinous, nihilistic, savage destruction of his fellow man. He never received an answer, and walked lamely back to the jeep in which he arrived, wanting nothing more than to leave this place, though it would now be with him for the rest of his life. When you experience a horrific situation like that, perhaps you are like Corporal Charles Wilson. Perhaps the enormity of this evil that you've seen, evil that you did not think was possible until it was staring you in the face, perhaps this evil is too much for you to bear. And while there were several stories from across Germany and its former occupied territories that shockingly mirror that of Charles Wilson, men frantically praying, weeping uncontrollably, this might not be what you want to believe you would do, especially if you're not a believer, or because you're angry. Trust me, I get it. Even reading about what happened in the Holocaust, seeing the photos, going through the Holocaust Museum in D.C., seeing the faces and hearing the testimony of people who lived through hell on earth, shaking their hands, it, it breaks your fucking heart. But for our story today, you need to imagine what it was like for these men. Many which have no concept of a Holocaust or a genocide or even a concentration camp, who are then thrust into this situation with all of the sights, smells, and sensations that I described earlier. Imagine it. 
Really imagine it. And once you've imagined it, which you might have already been doing, really stop and wonder how you would react. Would you react like Charles Wilson? Or would you be filled with just inconsolable rage? And in that case, if given the chance to punish those, viciously punish and completely destroy those who caused such horror right there on the spot, would you pass up that chance? Would it be right to even take that chance? This story that we're going to be looking at today is going to be nothing short of a challenge, at least if I've done my job right, a challenge for you to hear, a challenge for me to say as much as it was a challenge for me to write to begin with. But it's going to be a challenge for you also as it was a challenge for me thinking about these things if you think that the rule of law is the only thing that separates us from complete chaos and social breakdown. But it's also going to be a challenge if you value prescriptive vengeance or the eye-for-an-eye method of punishment. It's going to be a challenge on a whole other level because, frankly, it's a story that many modern-day Holocaust skeptics, deniers, and even neo-Nazis like to latch on to as, I don't know, like some kind of pathetic rallying cry to prove greater German victimhood because I don't know. I don't even know. I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a contrarian by nature, as I'm sure many of you listening can tell and those of you who know me can attest. But genocide, and especially the Holocaust, it's a subject I just... I just don't understand what motivates that kind of skepticism, especially when things are so well documented and it's beyond obvious that the final stage of a genocide is denial. I can empathize with being a contrarian, with contrarianism. I really can. There, there wouldn't be a history impossible if I couldn't, but I just can't place myself in the mind of someone who would go there. It's not cool. It's not edgy. It's just really fucking weird. And it just seems sick to me. Deeply, deeply sick. So, that's one reason why this story is a challenge. It's also mainly a challenge, though, because, and consider this my fair warning, there is no way you're going to feel good about the ending that's coming. I don't. But, again, if if I've done my job right, it's going to make you think about your own notions of punishment, your notions of discipline, and, mo- most importantly, possibly, your notions of justice. Because while there are countless stories involving the Holocaust that challenge us on some level, that force us to look in the mirror and wonder what we're capable of, I don't think there's one more appropriate than the one we're looking at here today. And that's the liberation of Dachau. Dachau is frequently called the first Nazi concentration camp. And while that's not technically true, thanks to the concentration camp called Nora, built a few weeks earlier, Dachau is certainly one of the most famous, probably the most famous camp within the borders of Germany during the Second World War. 
It was erected in March of 1933, almost immediately after Hitler fully came to power with the purpose of housing political dissidents, though its purposes became much, much darker as time went on. According to the U.S. 7th Army's report on Dachau, published shortly after its liberation, a total of 39,000 prisoners were processed through Dachau from 1933 to 1939 using a numbered index card system. This kind of record-keeping of mass murder and slave labor was the standard, and probably in some ways one of the more disturbing aspects of Nazi Germany's crimes. But there were an additional 21,000 prisoners processed during that same six-year period. However, the number jumps up to a quite frankly spectacular 161,930 prisoners processed between March of 1940 and April 26, 1945, only three days before the Americans arrived at the camp. 7,000 additional prisoners were added all at once, only three weeks before liberation, which helps illustrate both the Germans' desperation to get rid of all their prisoners in one place at the last minute, and likely the intent to essentially murder all of the evidence of what they'd been doing. In total, the 7th Army's report accounts for 29,138 executions of Jewish prisoners and 16,717 executions of Germans from foreign countries for a total of over 45,000 murdered, though the Dachau website puts the number at around 41,500. But honestly, that that discrepancy, what is all that? What is 45,000 or 41,500? Those are numbers. Yes, they represent people. Those numbers do matter. I'm not saying they don't, but there's that famous Stalin quote about every, you know, a million deaths being a statistic while one death is a tragedy, that kind of thing. But I want to take a different angle to sort of give you an idea of why numbers don't really help us here. Because as any kid knows, when they try counting as high as they can for the first time, maybe that was just me, I don't know. But I remember, at least, when I got into the hundreds alone, the numbers start to lose anything but the most abstract kind of meaning. They're just like, oh, I got from 200 to 300, that kind of thing. Never mind, though... When you get into the thousands or the tens of thousands, which I never did, by the way, I don't think I made it past, I don't think I made it past 300. I bring this up because we don't need these numbers to describe what happened at Dachau. We have accounts, plenty of accounts, mostly from survivors, but also from the perpetrators. And these accounts are really the only way modern minds can even attempt to comprehend horror so unknowable. And I want to try and communicate this reality to you in a way that will resonate with you, hopefully personally, as closely as possible and as respectfully as possible, though, I mean, that's up for debate, I'm sure, by giving you a scenario, basing this scenario off of several real-world accounts coming from a few different survivors of Dachau that I read. This might seem cheap, but honestly, I, I think it's the only way to communicate this thing effectively. Let's just start this as bluntly as possible. Let's say that you're a Jew who's been taken by the Nazis. You're likely in a relatively small group, maybe of about 100 or so other men, 
probably taken from different parts of occupied France. You've had all of your things taken from you. Never mind your home. You have no luggage. You have nothing but the clothes on your back that you were wearing when the armed Gestapo dragged you from wherever they found you and turned you over to the sneering SS men at your local train station. If you hadn't heard about what the Germans were already doing to their prisoners, you might have thought you were going to get put on a regular train carriage, perhaps cuffed to your seat. Instead, you're pushed, prodded, and shoved into a waiting, stinking cattle car with your fellow prisoners smushed together like tinned fish. And then you're in that dark, stinking, cramped car, standing in your own filth day after day after day after day. You and your fellow prisoners sleep standing up. You shit and piss yourselves. Whenever the train slows, you might start to hope that it'll stop so the Germans will give you water, maybe even a bit of food, but it doesn't happen. And on occasion, when it does, it's never even remotely enough for the whole car, and men literally beat and bite each other to death over the scraps of stale bread being given, with the survivor barely satisfied as the corpse of his victim remains pressed in the standing position beside him. If you're being transported in winter, you may be lucky enough to sort of hydrate yourself with some of the snow you grab by reaching through the slats on the side of the cattle car, but the flip side of this is that you're just as likely to freeze to death or come down with pneumonia thanks to the cold and your compromised immune system. Because disease does move through the masses of men standing with you, disease and starvation. All you can hear day after day after day, apart from the low hum and clack, 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 of the train moving through the European countryside is the constant, pathetic moaning and wailing and crying of your fellow prisoners. The unintelligible babbling and blubbering as if their moans would soothe the pain in their increasingly shriveled and wrecked bellies. The wailing and moaning becomes less frequent as time goes on, and you realize that all that stink that you've gotten used to, of your own filth that you've been standing in for days, perhaps weeks on end, has become intermixed with the stench of death. And then, the train finally lurches to a stop. The doors open, and many of your fellow prisoners' bodies simply topple out, like matchsticks falling out of an open box. When all is said and done, and your Nazi captors have taken their tally, you realize that you are only one of three survivors— in your entire car. But that's okay as far as the Nazis are concerned. They've weeded out the weak. And there are survivors in other cars, though most of them are filled with dead too. And a few days later, you hear through the grapevine that the other two sickly prisoners that you were with died of whatever disease they'd come down with. You are now the only survivor of your car and your hellish journey. And... As cliche as it might sound, the real horror hasn't even started, and you likely don't even realize it as you walk underneath the sign over the gates of Dachau that tells you work makes you free. There are several things that may happen now that you've become an internee at Dachau, and I, I feel like it's important to go through some of them. If you manage to survive the initial interrogations conducted by the SS, which were almost always coupled with brutal beatings, 
you will be stripped of the clothes that you had, dressed in the infamous striped pajamas, placed in quarantine barracks for three weeks to prevent disease from spreading through the camp and the internees who are already there, who are acting as slave labor, before being placed in your permanent barracks after that, where you would live, if you could call it that. Your daily routine was beyond an awful grind, beginning with shouting SS guards barging into the barracks at 5.30 a.m. in the winter and 4.30 a.m. in the summer when it's still dark. You'd be merely fed a breakfast of black coffee and then be forced to stand for hours during what the 7th Army in its report referred to as the quote-unquote interminable roll call. You'd be placed on a particular work detail by the work commander, which would usually involve camp upkeep, construction, making uniforms for SS officers, constructing small arms, plantation slave work, and rapidly loading crushed rock into wagons. Basically pure mind-numbing and or physical labor, all while subsisting on a quarter-inch thick slice of bread and thin slice of sausage for lunch and a dinner of cabbage, carrots, and maybe potatoes if you're lucky. And then you would do it all over again the next day if you were lucky enough not to be worked to death, especially on the plantation where an estimated 3,000 Jews died. But if you weren't being worked to death at Dachau... You'd likely be part of the group selected for something much, much worse. You'd be sitting in your barracks one moment, and the next, you would be alerted by the sound of a truck rolling up between two of the barracks followed by SS men, including a doctor, entering your barrack. The doctor, a man whose name you may recall from hearing it through the grapevine, is Sigmund Rosher, who would look over your fellow inmates until for reasons beyond you, smiles and says something along the lines of, you'll do. You'd be led from the barracks by the SS men, not too roughly as per the doctor's instructions, and taken to the truck that you heard stop outside your barracks. You'd be led into a small cylinder, and after the door is shut behind you, you'd start to eventually feel an intense pop, followed by a ringing in your ears. The ringing intensifies into blinding, excruciating pain, and you feel your head wiggling uncontrollably before you lose consciousness. If you somehow manage to wake up from this procedure, designed to mimic the rapid high-altitude-to-sea-level air pressure drops experienced by parachutists, you'd likely feel nothing but fear and confusion when you woke up thanks to the fluid buildup in your brain and your lack of oxygen. Disorientation, if you will. You probably can't even walk. But if you're not placed in the pressure chamber, you might be led to a room where, after getting over the confusion, the understandable confusion of being placed in a Luftwaffe pilot's uniform, you'd be placed in a 12-foot tank of water. You're still allowed to breathe with the aid of oxygen and keep your head above the surface, but the water is only 1 degree centigrade, or 33 degrees Fahrenheit. 1 degree above freezing. The water is so cold that you can't even breathe correctly. So the smiling doctors in Nazi uniforms stand over you and hold you steady as you shake uncontrollably. And this is a real photograph that exists. Some part of your brain might recall that at temperatures this shockingly low, it only takes three minutes to lose feeling and usually less than 30 minutes to lose consciousness. And you have no idea how long you'll be in here, counting the seconds as they go by, maybe 
even managing to croak out a weak cry of pain, and occasionally hearing the doctors make comments about how you or your body is reacting to the experiment. And then suddenly it's over. But you're having your Luftwaffe costume, designed to imitate that of the pilots who crashed into the freezing waters of the Atlantic, stripped completely off of you until you're completely naked, shivering. You're then led into another room. One of two things will happen in the next room you're taken to. You'll either scream out in the most unbelievable pain you've ever experienced as you're dunked into a scalding bath, or you'll be taken into another area where you see the starving, naked form of a fellow female inmate brought in from the nearby Ravensbrook prison, and you'll be forced to simply lie together or even copulate with her, all while the doctors essentially sodomize you with a rectal thermometer to test the effectiveness of shared bodily warmth. You may be deliberately infected with germs to induce excruciating inflammation under your skin. You may be inoculated with malaria and essentially have a 50-50 shot at being given treatment depending on which experimental group you're a part of. You may be given a tablet called Polygol, a beet and apple pectin-based blood coagulant, before you're shot through the chest, neck, or limbs to test its blood clotting ability. If you were shot through one of your limbs, it typically gets amputated without anesthetic. You may be starved even more severely than you already are, and then forced to drink filtered seawater. The imagination of these so-called doctors seems to have no bounds. And you in this hypothetical situation that actually happened to thousands of people, can't help but wonder, how could they do anything like this to human beings? This is the very question asked by one of the American liberators at the end of April of 1945. It probably wouldn't surprise you if you were in this situation and if you learned that the Nazi doctor being asked that question simply wrinkled his nose as he said the following... Ah, uh, they were all going to die anyhow. But you might have been spared either of these fates, forced labor or medical experimentation, if you became an internee at Dachau. If you were a Jew or a Russian and deemed useless to the war effort, women and children namely, but old people as well, you would be screened like the other prisoners, promptly marched into a room and told to strip. Then... You and your group would be led through a doorway marked with a sign that read Brausebad. After everyone is inside the shower room, you'd look up at the 15 shower faucets hanging from the ceiling above you, expecting cold water. Then the gas comes in. It burns your lungs from the inside out and takes 10 minutes to kill you and all 199 other people in that room. In other words, if we go with the third possibility of what happened to prisoners who were shipped to Dachau, the Nazis simply killed you. You were of no use to them. This all happened. Make no mistake. But if you were one of the men, and occasionally women, who did and facilitated all of this horror... 
Did you arrive at the gates of Dachau, fresh-faced with an evil grin on your face, a mustache ready to twiddle, and ready to commit mass murder with the rest of the fascist thugs you call the friends and allies? Did you delight in the evil you knew you were going to perpetrate, make jokes about it? Or did you arrive and simply get shuffled into whatever department for which the higher-ups believed you were the best suited, despite the fact that you may have volunteered your services to the fatherland. Dachau wouldn't be as horrifying as it was if the extreme evil committed there that I just spent however long, it felt like an eternity, frankly, that I just described to you wasn't done with the attitude and excitement of delivering a memo to your hungover supervisor or feeding a new stack of 8x11s into the printer that you just know is going to jam and it'll be your job to clear it out. The 7th Army's report on Dachau, upon investigation, found that it wasn't the internees, camp department, or the hospitals considered to be the most important ones within Dachau. They found that the political department the department that was dedicated to ensuring smooth communication between the camp commandant and the higher-ups in Berlin, the department in charge of keeping records of every single prisoner shipped through Dachau in massive record books filled with nothing but names, the department in charge of writing Sahara Dry (laughs) reports after every execution. That department was considered to be the most important one in Dachau. The Nazis stationed at Dachau, and all of the concentration camps scattered across Nazi territory for that matter, they were so evil that they couldn't have been bothered to even be maniacally excited about the vile things they did. Some of them certainly did, but Hannah Arendt may have been wrong about Adolf Eichmann's true evil sadism and his hatred of the Jews and his glee at having them, as many of them as he possibly could, killed, but the banality of evil indeed. Now, I know this question kind of seems maybe a little trite at this point, especially to history buffs and especially to Holocaust history buffs, but I I think it's an important one. How could the Nazis have done this to so many people? It's the big question of the Holocaust, right? In a lot of ways. Let's jump back a bit to one of my examples to explore that. I know that a lot of you have probably read or at least heard about the human experimentation that occurred during the Holocaust. Some of you probably even already knew some of the more gruesome details of the different experiments that were conducted on Jews, Roma, Sinti, homosexuals, Russian POWs, Polish people, priests, and so forth, and many more that I described earlier, including the ones I didn't, like the particularly horrifying and frankly perverted ones conducted by Dr. Josef Mengele at Auschwitz. There's a morbidly interesting paradox that I don't think it's examined enough when we look at the Holocaust and its use of human guinea pigs because I think it cuts to the core of why and how, the big why 
and big how, really, of the Holocaust itself. We know that the Nazis considered their victims, the Jews in particular, but really all of their victims, as less than human. In fact, even after Dachau was liberated by the Americans, as we've seen, like with the doctor who said they were all going to die anyhow, quote-unquote, many of the remaining SS men showed no remorse for what they had done. And bear with me on this, but this lack of remorse was not necessarily because they were just evil and took sadistic pleasure in the idea that they were inflicting suffering on fellow human beings, though... I mentioned this earlier, some certainly did. There's plenty of evidence of that all over Nazi Germany. But the average SS man would say largely the same thing. These are not people. These are animals. That and its seemingly infinite variations is a horrifying thing to hear when you really think about it. Truly horrifying. In fact, there's a great scene that illustrates this, written by Sidney Olson, the Time Life correspondent who was embedded with the troops who liberated Dachau. In this story, he describes infiltrating the mess hall at Dachau in... It just, it, it just crackles with life, so I want to read it to you verbatim. So let's go on with this to help illustrate this point of how the Nazis saw their victims, even in the face of defeat. Quote, in each of the neat, orderly, well-appointed offices. Throughout the camp, large framed photographs of Heinrich Himmler dominated the room. His photo also dominated a kitchen in an SS mess hall where a stormtrooper sat alone at a table. Nearby, water from a tap over a basin was running full blast and spilling onto the floor. In the kitchen was a sour smell of spoiled food, still in pots on the stove. On the table before the stormtrooper was a half-eaten meal. "'What are you?' he was asked. "'SS,' he replied bluntly and arrogantly. "'What are these others?' He shrugged contemptuously. "'Luftwaffe.' Someone whispered the question. "'How could you do these things?' This time, he just shrugged. "'These human swine,' he said. Unquote. Like I said, truly horrifying. However, this was also par for the course. As historian Claudia Kuhns puts it in her book, The Nazi Conscience, quote, In contrast to the optimistic language of international covenants guaranteeing universal human rights to all people, Nazi public culture was constructed on the mantra, not every being with a human face is human. Unquote. This was in line with Adolf Hitler's rhetoric regarding the Jews since day one, comparing them to lice more often than not, but with other pestilences being used as points of comparison cropping up everywhere. As early as September of 1919, in a statement that he wrote, Hitler referred to the Jews as, quote, the race tuberculosis of the Volk, unquote, the last word meaning people and showing a very clear delineation in his mind between Jews and people. In 1928, he described Jews as quote-unquote parasitical to the lives of the non-Jews with whom they lived. 
During one of his 1942 table talks, Hitler claimed that, quote, we shall regain our health by eliminating the Jew, unquote, comparing them to a sickness. He also referred to them as poison and frequently compared them to germs, diseased rats, and greedy pests. But it's this proclamation from Hitler in 1943 that really gives us both the notion of what the Nazi problem and, as they would have it, solution was and would become. Quote, Today, international Jewry is the ferment of decomposition of peoples and states, just as it was in antiquity. It will remain that way as long as peoples do not find the strength to get rid of the virus. Unquote. And yet, Despite all of this indoctrination into the idea that who the Nazis were dealing with in their final solution were merely, or more appropriately rather, known as what, they still use these ostensibly non-human individuals as proxies for studying the effects of everything from hypothermia to high altitude on the human body. This is doublethink in its purest form. These are not people, inhuman beings, so we can do whatever we want to them. So let's use them for human experiments? What? That is insanity. But the thing is, this actually isn't that weird. It's weird. It's sick. It's wrong. On literally every possible level. But it's also, and please bear with me, despite my use of this loaded word... It's also normal. This double-think is normal. It is human. It is human to the core. And it is something that the Nazis had no trouble doing, and something me, you, your friends, your grandmother, or that random guy you see on the train on your way to work every day, something none of us have any trouble doing. We are all capable of it. This double-think that I highlighted for you just now, is the process of dehumanization, which is the fundamentally human psychological trick that our brains play to allow us to do these things to each other in the first place, whether it's to submerge a half-starved Jew into a tank of sub-zero water and then force him to lay with a hog to warm up, or why we call that driver who cut us off during a traffic jam on the 405 a worthless piece of shit. The process of dehumanization is a surprisingly recent field of study, and even more surprisingly, not particularly widely studied, even in a field like psychology that's very concerned with matters like this. It's a difficult knot to untangle, but it's a knot that holds the key to the question of why and how people kill, especially kill en masse, and thus how something as horrible as the Holocaust happened, not to mention why the liberation of Dachau occurred the way it did. Dehumanization isn't as simple as referring to people as if they were inanimate objects. It creates an emotional distance in that same way, for sure, but not the kind that allows for killing, not in the way that we're talking about, at least. Philosopher David Livingstone Smith puts it this way in his book on the process of dehumanization less than human, quote, Sure, the Nazi bureaucrats treated prisoners as mere numbers, but the Nazi bureaucrats treated everyone as numbers. That's part of the bureaucratic mindset. The men, and occasionally women, who actually committed atrocities, as well as the leaders that commanded them to do so, emphatically did not conceive of Jews as numbers. 
you don't kill numbers. Israeli anthropologist Ayel Ben-Ari distinguishes objectification from dehumanization. Ben-Ari points out that, at least in the military context, both us and them are objectified, whereas dehumanization exaggerates the difference between us and them. This dissimilarity suggests that producing the forces producing these two phenomena may be correspondingly distinct. Unquote. In other words, dehumanization isn't the same thing as the often cited, often referenced worries involving objectification that you frequently hear in the media even today. Probably just yesterday you saw something about objectification. But there's nothing dehumanizing about, say, for example, reducing a woman to her physical attributes that you find attractive. It can certainly be insulting to that particular woman, but we frequently see the lines between dehumanization and objectification blurred, especially in this modern context I'm using here. And this is a mistake. But to further drive this necessary distinction home, the purpose of dehumanization as a process that exaggerates differences isn't to highlight or even celebrate the way it typically is when we're talking about a beautiful woman being objectified. Regardless of whether we like it or not, an objectified woman is typically being held up as an exemplar of humanity, specifically the female side of it. However, a dehumanized woman is being held up as a fake version of the female side of humanity. In other words, to quote David Livingstone Smith again, quote, a creature that looks like a human, but who is not endowed with a human essence, unquote. I have to admit, this is getting a little into the weeds here, but I think it's crucial if we're ever to understand the hatred that acted as the petroleum for the Holocaust machine. A philosopher named Saul Kripke from Princeton University has written about essences, quote-unquote, from the philosophical context, and David Livingstone Smith does some clever rejiggering with Kripke's words regarding the essence of gold, the element, by replacing gold with human, making this point about essences but applied to humans much clearer. Quote, Given that human beings do have a human essence, could something be human without having this essence? Given that humans are this kind of being, any other being, even though it looks human and is found in the very places where we in fact find human beings, would not be human. It would be some creature which was a counterfeit human. Unquote. I hope you forgive me if this sounds a little, I don't know, bombastic or hyperbolic or maybe even obvious if you've thought about this kind of thing before. But this is the true essence of racism. This idea that there are real humans and fake humans. Not animals, despite the frequent use of that word. What racists like the Nazis, or really any racist of any skin color at any point in time, are thinking when they feel that distrust bubbling up into hatred within them is the idea that this person they're looking at, or this group of people they're thinking of, is not only not a person or group of people, but a fake version of a person or a fake version of a group of people. There's something you film buffs out there in the audience have likely heard before, especially when talking about digital effects in movies lately. 
I know I heard it a lot when fellow Star Wars fans were talking about the computer-generated version of Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One a few years ago. You also hear it invoked when describing that queasy feeling that some of us get when we see pictures and especially video of humanized robots making those jerky but still somewhat human movements that we're staring into the uncanny valley. You're seeing something that clearly looks a lot like you, bipedal, upright, with all the same body parts, but there's something just off about it. And a lot of people simply want to look away or will even say, usually half-jokingly, but it's still very telling, something like, Kill it! Kill it with fire! You probably have seen comments like that on Facebook when people share those robot videos. But the Uncanny Valley really is more than just questionable CG in a film or the weird robots being made in Japan. The Uncanny Valley, this term we use to critique the quality of film special effects and our reaction to it, is at the core of racism in our world. And this isn't my idea. This is just my own spin on it by bringing up the Uncanny Valley, my own reflection, rather. And it's my own spin or reflection on something that was supposedly being reflected upon 3,000 years ago, within the pages of the Old Testament at that, in the Book of Judges. The story basically revolves around a war that occurred between two tribes, the tribe of Gilead and one of the ten lost tribes of Israel, Ephraim. The Ephraimites are defeated in battle against the tribe of Gilead and attempt to make a hasty retreat across the River Jordan. The problem is that the soldiers of Gilead have made checkpoints across the river. While trying to sneak past the checkpoints disguised as other soldiers of Gilead, the Ephraimites are stopped and simply asked to pronounce the word Shibboleth. The Ephraimites say Sibboleth, mispronouncing the word by Gilead standards and... According to the legend, as a response, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed, all thanks to the mispronunciation of a word that carried the same meaning regardless of how it was said. In other words, it was the same, but, you know, somehow different. This biblical tale actually serves as a really nice backbone to a real psychological-slash-anthropological theory that will neatly tie all this together called the Ugly Duckling Hypothesis. It's a term coined by anthropologist Francisco Gill White that basically suggests we as humans single out quote-unquote ugly ducklings, other races in this case. It doesn't matter that we're all ducklings, but that one in particular is ugly and doesn't belong with us. If you remember the tale, there's a little bit of a wrinkle in that considering the twist of that tale at the end, but regardless, it's apt. But he states that this impulse, this ugly duckling impulse, exists within us because of structures within our brains that actually helped form our modern minds and capabilities therein. Thanks to a process of exaptation, which basically is the evolutionary phenomenon that explains why we have useless organs, like why I still have an appendix that does absolutely nothing, or maybe a little more appropriate comparison, why penguins still have wings but don't fly. But this process of exaptation allowed early human beings to develop the ability to differentiate between dangerous and safe creatures based on simple physical appearance alone. This adaptation turned into an exaptation as time went on and communities began to form. And 
the thing that allowed human beings to differentiate dangerous and safe animals was applied to other tribes of humans, and thus the notion of quote-unquote ethno-races was born. This evolved in tandem with the evolution of society and allowed this biological component to become implanted on a sociological component within our minds, and outside of them as well. As David Livingstone Smith puts it, quote, Because thoughts about ethno-racial groups have a deep resonance with thoughts about biological species thanks to this exaptation, people's minds naturally turn to thoughts about the latter when they want to denigrate the former. Unquote. This is why ethnic groups are perceived, keyword there, perceived, to be biological species, ethno-races, whether we like it or not. And this is why race is neither simply a social construct nor an immutable characteristic. The social constructivists out there are wrong, and so are the biological essentialists. They're both wrong. Or both right, depending on how you want to look at it. The point is, the truth is not on one side or the other. What it really is, though, is an inconvenient acceptation that we've just been stuck with for millennia. And, to bring this all the way back around, this is what allowed the Nazis all across the Third Reich and its occupied territories to shove their victims into gas chambers or line them up over shooting pits, filling them both by the millions and feel essentially okay about it. The Nazis weren't doing this to people. They were doing it to quote-unquote fake humans. Human-seeming creatures that the Nazis believed lived within the uncanny valley at all times. Ones who couldn't pass the tribe of Gideon-esque smell test, if you will. Ones who were seen as a separate species because of a defective, useless brain adaptation finding some new place to thrive. The aftermath of all this dehumanization by the Nazis is what the Americans faced as they neared the gates of Dachau. And facing the aftermath of all this, reactions like those of Corporal Charles Wilson weeping and praying to an unanswering God, or his comrade digging his nails into his palms until they drew blood, they all start to make sense. It makes sense that this kind of thing didn't make sense to them because it was essentially a showcase of something unconscious within their own minds being forced into their conscious minds, an awareness of it. But that's not what makes the liberation of Dachau unique. Dachau's liberation was unique because of how profoundly it broke the souls of some of its liberators. But here's the flip side to all of this. The liberation of Dachau allows us to see just how easily the dark mirror of dehumanization can be held up, simply as a consequence of that soul-breaking. When General Dwight Eisenhower witnessed these horrors himself and heard one of his soldiers laugh nervously, likely as yet another perfectly understandable defense mechanism, one of General Patton's aides recalled the following reaction. Quote, General Eisenhower fixed him with a cold eye, and when he spoke, each word was like the drop off an icicle. Still have trouble hating them? Unquote.
few basic facts for the sake of context before we move on. Most of you listening probably know the name Dachau for the concentration camp, whose liberation we're going to be talking about here. However, Dachau isn't just a concentration camp. It's a town. It's a town in Upper Bavaria, near Munich. Actually, very close. It's uh, about 12 miles away, if memory serves. It's a small town. As of now, about 40,000 Germans live there. No reason to think that it wasn't close to that number. It was in the five-figure range during the war. But because it was so close to Munich, which was the capital of Upper Bavaria, it provided a really nice incentive for Americans to capture it. Because Munich, capturing the capital of Upper Bavaria, capturing Munich, was a big win. It was a huge win. Great incentive. And even though by the time the Americans got close to Munich and started approaching Dachau, it still would have been a major victory even with Nazi Germany on its last legs. There was good incentive there is what I'm trying to say. The American troops in charge of, well, who eventually liberated Dachau, but who were in charge of basically taking over Munich were part of the 7th Army, and they were the 45th Division. And a few facts, a few interesting tidbits I think are necessary to give you an idea of who the 45th Division was. They were actually formed officially between World War I and World War II, though some of their elements had been present in the First World War when the Americans took part. And funny enough, this is just a little bit of trivia, until the early 1930s, it actually had a swastika for its logo. Not the Nazi swastika, not the tilted version, but the other version. And it actually apparently had more to do with honoring the Native Americans, specifically from the Southwestern tribes who were part of the division. Obviously, once Hitler took over as Chancellor of Germany and the swastika took on a very different meaning to this day that we're kind of stuck with, they had to change it, and they did. It's just an interesting little tidbit, I think. But the 45th Division saw a lot of action during the Second World War and actually suffered pretty greatly for it. I don't think it was the worst of all of the divisions on the American side, but they did suffer many casualties. Total casualties being 20,993 with 3,547 killed in action and 14,441 wounded. That's pretty significant and, you know, not in the grand scheme of things, but for the division, it definitely made an impact. And like I said, they saw a lot of action. It wasn't just Germany either. During World War II, they were known for seeing action in Sicily, Naples, Foggia, Anzio, Rome, Arno, southern France, the Rhineland, the Ardennes and Alsace, and central Europe itself. So they, they were all over the place. So by the time late April of 1945 came around... They were grizzled, hardened vets of the utmost degree. They, like I said, had seen lots of action. But as they pressed further into Germany and eventually started approaching Munich, despite knowing that the war was not going well for the Germans, they were chasing the Wehrmacht, basically, who were in full retreat. But as they were approaching, they found out about this little town known as Dachau. As soldier Sam Dan who was part of the 45th Division and ultimately would compile the memories and recollections of members of the 45th Division for the book known as the Rainbow Liberation Memoirs, named after the fact that the division was called Rainbow, was nicknamed that. He compiled all of these recollections and memories of the liberation of Dachau in 1995 in this book, like I said, called the Liberation Memoirs. He describes the march towards Munich as follows, quote, 
On April 29, 1945, the United States 7th Army was in hot pursuit of what was left of the German Wehrmacht, the armed forces of Nazi Germany in our sector. We were racing to Munich, where they either would or would not make a last, desperate stand. But when we were less than 10 miles from our military objective, we ran into an installation many of us had never heard of, Dachau, swiftly became known as one of the most infamous of German concentration camps. Then, however, many of us had no idea what a concentration camp even was. Who could even dream that such a place might exist? Unquote. This sort of naivete, I don't know if I want to call it that, but this sort of unawareness of Dachau or that such a place might even exist is very strikingly laid out in this letter written by Lieutenant William J. Cowling III of Leavenworth, Kansas. On April 28th, he wrote to his parents, quote, Dear folks, boy oh boy am I having a heck of a time trying to find time to write. We are really moving. My days have been consisting of getting up between 6.30 and 7.30 eating, throwing my stuff in a jeep and taking off. When visiting the regiments and sometimes the battalions and then head for a new CP. By the time we get into the new CP and set up, it is 11 o'clock at night or later and I am so tired I just hit the sack. So I really haven't had much time to write. I received the fruitcake the other day and boy it was good. That package contained all the right things. I have lost my chapstick and my lips were so chapped so it really came in handy. Unquote. I don't want to say that people like Lieutenant Cowling were naive, but at the same time, knowing what we know now and knowing what they would face in the coming day after he wrote that letter, it's hard not to find any other word for it. Naive. None of these men had any idea what was in store for them. As they approached the gates of Dachau, the 7th Army's 45th Infantry Division came upon a series of cattle cars, all seemingly abandoned, no living soul in sight. Then they saw the contents of the cattle cars. As Staff Sergeant Jack Hallowell was later reported as saying, quote, The bodies were lying, hanging out the open doors. Some people had been able to get out and then had fallen in the field and died. They were just little skeletons within their prison clothing. Unquote. Some of the train cars were riddled with bullets, likely fired from the MP-40 submachine and MG-42 machine guns used by the Nazis, but there were also gunshots to the backs of many of the starving inmates' heads. The head of the division forces liberating Dachau, Lieutenant Colonel Felix L. Sparks, describes seeing some of the inmates' bodies with their heads, quote, crushed in, apparently with a rifle butt, and their brains were scattered all around on the pavement, unquote. Men throughout the division, like Hallowell and Sparks, were definitely deeply affected by what they saw, almost infamously become called the Death Train of Dachau. But it's safe to say that the most deeply affected man in the division that day was First Lieutenant William Walsh, a 24-year-old kid from Newton, Massachusetts, who, as military historian John C. McManus writes, spoke with a thick New England accent which just adds so much character, especially I do remember hearing someone describe him as having a chowder-thick New England accent. And having seen a couple interviews with the guy later in life, I can attest he definitely does have that. 
Anyway, as Walsh stared at the starved, shot, clubbed-to-death bodies, he would later recall thinking the following thing, quote, Their families don't know this. Their fathers, their mothers, their sisters, their brothers, their children, they don't know they're here. Nobody will ever know what happened to them. This was a culmination of something that I had never been trained for. Nobody ever said this goes on. Unquote. Walsh's emotional reaction wasn't clear, even to him right away. His comrades surrounding him were having a whole range of reactions, according to multiple accounts from Lieutenant Colonel Sparks remembering a quote-unquote flood of raw emotions, including things like screaming, cursing, or just silence, just stoic silence. And there were other accounts recalling some of the soldiers exclaiming things like, don't take any SS alive, and let's kill every one of these bastards. After having seen the just nasty horror of the death train, the hundreds if not thousands upon thousands of just dead, starved bodies, many of them naked, just stacked one on top of each other, with many different accounts using the same phrase, bodies stacked up like cordwood. In the end, this wrecked these men, and all they could look for was hope for revenge in a lot of cases. They were just, that's how they dealt with the emotions they felt seeing these things. But it was a mess, and the discipline of these increasingly broken men was starting to unravel, and unravel quickly. As Private First Class John Lee later recalled, quote, You try and hold yourself together. You try to tell yourself that you can control yourself. Well, I looked at my buddy Bobby McDonnell, and he was just in complete tears. So then I busted out. And looking around, I think most of the guys were all teary-eyed. You almost start getting a savage feeling out of it yourself, wondering if there's some sort of way of getting revenge. Unquote. Lieutenant Walsh was standing around as all of this was happening, and then, eventually, something came over him and he joined them, cursing the Germans with every foul name he could think of, as he recalled in an interview nearly half a century later, quote, I'll be honest with you. I broke down. I started crying. The whole thing was getting to me. You get pretty shaken. I'm shaken right this minute just talking about it, and I didn't know if I could talk about it. I tried to forget about it for years. Unquote. Walsh's shaking, however, wasn't just a result of fear, sadness, and trauma. Those were certainly part of him, especially given that he had seen so much combat in those engagements that I mentioned earlier. He was in all of those. He had lost buddies. But his shaking in this case, after seeing all the dead bodies on the death train, was the product of a deep, deep animalistic rage, both apparent in his interview and apparent at the time of Dachau's liberation. He was known for being loud, opinionated, and good at making his presence known, and his soul being snapped in two in front of all of his men was no exception. And yet, Lieutenant Walsh's blind, sobbing rage didn't seem to preclude him from being given an important duty, because Lieutenant Colonel Sparks ordered him to lead two platoons deeper into Dachau's surrounding area. It's tough for me to pass judgment 
on the leadership capabilities of people in the military scene as I've never served, so I feel a little guilty doing this. But given hindsight, of course, and of, of what's about to happen, as well as the recollections of other soldiers who are part of these platoons, it's it's basically impossible for me not to shake my head at the idea that this idea of sending a group of clearly, truly broken men wasn't going to end in some kind of dereliction of duty, if not outright disaster. As one of the platoon leaders, a Lieutenant Harold Moyer, recalled later, quote, I never saw anything like it. The men were plain fighting mad. They went down that road without any regard for cover or concealment, unquote. Walsh and his men reached the brick walls of Dachau shortly after splitting off from the division at around 11 a.m., as the group of soldiers continued approaching the camp, they suddenly came across an SS man, quote-unquote, as Walsh later called him, who was holding up a white flag with a red cross on it, signifying that he was indeed part of the Red Cross. While Walsh would later recall that the SS man, quote, had beautiful blonde hair, unquote, and honestly, it's kind of funny, would refer to him as a, quote, handsome-looking bastard, unquote, the sight of him, the simple sight of this fit, well-fed, handsome bastard, as he called him, especially one who was presenting himself as a man of medicine, which I think played into this, it just made Walsh hate him all the more after seeing the death train. Walsh later recalled thinking, quote, You son of a bitch, where the hell were you five minutes ago before we got here, taking care of these people with your Red Cross armbands and all that shit? Unquote. The resentment and disgust felt by Walsh was shared by his men. In his amazing book, Hell Before Their Very Eyes, military historian who I quoted before, John C. McManus, wrote about the mood that hung in the air, also serving as a nice indicator of where this day was going to go. Quote, The mood was dark and menacing. Walsh's soldiers were angry and were in no mood to afford decent treatment to the man. He attempted to explain something in German, but no one understood, and they were hardly of a disposition to listen anyway. For a time, they herded him along all the while murmuring threats and imprecations. According to Walsh, he made a break and one of our men shot him, unquote. McManus explains that, when it comes down to it, we'll never know what happened with this first victim of the American reprisal killings at Dachau. Truth be told, the man probably did try to run, especially given that he didn't have to speak English to pick up on the at least the vibes being shown to him by these angry Americans shoving him down the road and making very clear threats, even if he didn't understand them. He probably just figured he had a better shot trying to escape than to try to parlay a peace deal, that kind of thing. That, you know, that calculus of self-preservation that we all have and are usually pretty good at. Or, then again, Walsh and his men might have just murdered him. We don't have any testimony on the matter except Walsh's own since, well, his victim is now long dead. But Lieutenant Bill Walsh and his men's rage wasn't about to be satisfied by this shooting, regardless of why they did it. As John C. McManus writes, quote, The atrocities Walsh had witnessed were beyond inexplicable. He could not understand how human beings could treat others of their own species with such ruthlessness. In his mind, the perpetrators deserve no quarter. Unquote. Or, as Walsh would recall much more tersely, quote, I had strong feelings against the Germans after that camp, unquote. These newly discovered 
strong feelings, as Walsh put it, is why he did what he did when they came upon four more surrendering SS men who had crawled from their hiding space wherever it had been. Instead of leaving them with one of his subordinates, as was normally policy, Walsh took personal charge of these four prisoners himself. And instead of waiting with them until the camp was secured, he took them back to the site of the death train. And instead of taking them back to the base to be processed and put into holding, he herded them into an open-topped rail car called a gondola. One of the men with Walsh and the prisoners, a private Fred Randolph, would later recall, quote, Walsh was quite angry and upset. He called for a machine gun, unquote. While the company's BAR machine gun man, Private First Class Harry Krause, appeared with the heavy machine gun in hand, Walsh apparently got cold feet and didn't take the machine gun and push the prisoners from the gondola car into a nearby boxcar. Inside that boxcar, he took out his forty-five pistol and shot each of them point-blank in the head, just as they had done to many of the victims of the death train, in his mind at least. And when it became clear that somehow one of the Germans was still alive thanks to unintelligible moaning and screaming in pain, a private named Albert Pruitt hopped into the car and quote-unquote finished him off, as he would later admit to the 7th Army Inspector General. And by finished him off, I mean that he pumped round after round from his rifle into the one who was still alive, as well as the ones who were already dead, who Lieutenant Walsh had executed. Pruitt would later justify his actions by claiming he didn't like to see people suffer because one brother of his lost a leg in combat, as well as saying he hated the Germans for killing his other brother. After these executions occurred, Walsh and the rest of his company, I Company, proceeded back towards Dachau, and the process of liberation began with the rest of the division. It took almost no time at all for I Company and the rest of the troops from the 45th Infantry Division to realize what had been going on at the camp. Starved inmates were there to meet them, many cheering, some reaching out to touch them, and many even running headlong into the electrified fences that hadn't been shut down, tragically killing themselves just in the effort to greet their liberators. The first Americans who liberated the camp were treated not just to these tragedies, but to the sight of stacks upon stacks of more starved bodies that the Nazis hadn't managed to burn in the crematoria before the liberation, as well as the sickly prisoners who could only weakly raise their hands in greeting, appreciation of finally being freed. There are a few specific accounts from the memoirs and recollections gathered from the soldiers who liberated Dachau that I want to tell, taken from the work compiled by Sam Dan that I was quoting from earlier. And I want to do this because, honestly, I, I think it's important to highlight some of the experiences of men who, with a few now obvious exceptions, were straight-up heroes. And their interactions with the other men they saved are, frankly, kind of inspiring, moving, if anything. And, I don't know, I just like these stories. The first comes from a private first class named Norman A. Thompson. He was only 20 years old when he entered the Dachau satellite labor camp of Alech, which was close by, to the main Dachau complex. He recalled, quote, Our detail leader hand-signaled me to the right toward a small outbuilding. I approached at an angle and sidled up alongside an open window. I have a recollection of a torn blanket hanging from the sill. An antiseptic odor was commingled with the stench of death. Inexplicably, 
it seemed I was looking into a vacated infirmary. There, on a reasonably clean slab floor, lying stretched out on a pallet, was the lone abandoned form of a young man. It was impossible to determine his age. He seemed anywhere between his teens and thirty. He probably weighed less than eighty pounds. Had he been able to stand, he would have been less than average height. He wore what looked like a diaper covering only his loins. The sunken cavity where his stomach should have been was edged by ribs that jutted out from the tight peel of skin that covered them. Ashen skin was drawn tight over distended joints, swollen knees, and elbows. His shaved head had a slight tinge of red. There was more tight skin over gaunt facial features, bone protruding from hollowed cheeks and sunken orbits. His great, round eyes were a light blue-gray, and they smiled. I managed to smile back. Unquote. I don't know. There's just something about that kid and Thompson smiling at each other, even if one was only doing it with his eyes. It just seems to say a lot, at least to me. The other account from a liberator that really got to me was from a Polish-American Jew named Morris Eisenstein, a corporal in H Company of the 45th Division. To be a Jew liberating Dachau, or really any of the camps where Jews were held, it, it can't be overstated how powerful that is. It really can't. Eisenstein's account is a testament to that power, at least as far as I'm concerned. Eisenstein would recall the following story, quote, While I was walking about, just trying to get a handle on this nightmare situation, I noticed a very old man huddled in a corner. His lips were moving as though they were either in mourning or in prayer. I walked over to him. He finally looked up at me and asked me who I was. He spoke Yiddish. I replied in Yiddish that I was an American Jewish soldier. But the poor soul kept bobbing and weaving and repeating in Yiddish, Alles kaput, everything broken. I tried to explain to him that he must remain where he was because rescue units were right behind us and that they would take care of him. Then, I happened to place my hand in my pocket. I remembered that the night before, we had fought and killed some SS troops. We searched them, and I had in my combat jacket some 15,000 marks. I took out this money and attempted to place it in the pocket of his ragged uniform. He saw the money, and then he looked at me. He shook his head and said to me, I cannot accept this gift. It is not proper. I have nothing to give you in return. He had, pinned to his threadbare clothing, that yellow star of David, which all the Jews had been compelled to wear by the Nazis. I told him that, in exchange, I would take the star, safety pin and all. It has been in my possession all the years since. Unquote. It wouldn't be proper. Man, I, I don't know. Just like... Just like even after being through all this destruction, death, misery, that old man couldn't let go of decorum or custom. It's, again, it's very weirdly powerful, at least to me. There are many other stories, moving ones like the ones I just told you, and also heroic ones that came out of Dachau during its liberation. It's good to remember this especially considering where we've been with this awful story and where we still have to go. 
It would be a mistake to think that the Dachau liberation was instantaneous. Shooting traded between the Americans and some Nazi holdouts did occur in various parts of the camp, such as the brief battles described by Corporal Robert W. Flora, also of H Company, alongside Eisenstein, who I quoted earlier, uh, with a few stray machine gunners in a guard tower and in one of the buildings. As Flora recalled, quote, So we move forward. A German machine gunner from a tower pinned us down for a bit, We got rid of him and moved on through the main gate, I think it was. As we started in, we were held up again by a machine gun that was firing at us from a window of one of the buildings. He would give us a burst, duck away, then give us another one. I just set the sights of my heavy 30 on that window and waited for him to rise up again. When he did, I got him. There was some, but not too much, fighting after that. Unquote. But while it would be a mistake to assume Dachau's liberation was a cakewalk, it was definitely easier to subdue the German forces there than it was at other camps and in other battles around that time, especially the battles faced by the 45th Division, all those theaters I listed to you earlier in this part of our story. A battle is a battle after all, even if it is easy, relatively speaking. So it does raise the tension in the air Tension that's already really high, thanks to the experiences of many of the troops at the death train. In the end, Dachau fell in a few hours, with very little overall resistance. Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sparks himself would later recall, quote, Because the main gate to the camp was closed and locked, we scaled the brick wall surrounding the camp. As I climbed over the wall, following the advancing soldiers, I heard rifle fire to my right. The lead elements of the company had reached the confinement area and were disposing of the SS troops manning the guard towers, along with a number of vicious guard dogs. By the time I neared the confinement area, the brief battle was almost over. Or, to put it much more simply and poetically, writer and Dachau liberator Sam Dan writes in the Liberation Memoirs I've uh, quoted from earlier, he writes the following passage that I think sums up the liberation itself perfectly. Like I said, very poetic. Quote, Dachau did not fall after a bitterly fought pitched battle. Dachau fell like a poisoned fruit from a diseased and dying tree. Unquote. Most of the Germans at Dachau surrendered without a fight, just like the five encountered by Lieutenant Walsh and his men on their way into Dachau. But their surrender, as well as the infectious euphoria expressed by a lot of the prisoners, did nothing to quell the feelings within the men who had seen the death train, not to mention the men of I Company, under the command of Lieutenant Bill Walsh. And speaking of Walsh, not to mention Lieutenant Bill Walsh, who, his soul, was still completely frayed at the seams, to say the least, simply from his experiences approaching Dachau. Lieutenant Colonel Sparks, in fact, recalls seeing Walsh literally chasing down a fleeing German, screaming at the top of his lungs, "'You sons of bitches! You sons of bitches! You sons of bitches!' And then, after having caught the man, repeatedly beating him over the head with the butt of his M1 carbine, cursing, bastards, 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 over and over and over again. Sparks, trying to maintain order and discipline, which he probably should have been doing earlier because it was his duty, ordered Walsh to stop beating the German to death, but Walsh ignored him. It took Sparks pistol-whipping Walsh to get the man to stop, leading to Walsh falling to the ground to just start weeping uncontrollably. It took seven other men to get Walsh to calm down. Sparks had made the mistake of still giving Walsh command after they had encountered the death train, which allowed the first reprisal killings to take place. 
That was mistake one. Mistake two was not checking in on Walsh as he was being calmed down and not making sure he was completely removed from the area. He was a compromised asset. Sparks simply let Walsh cool off and kept him in command. Remember, even though Dachau was essentially liberated, it was a delicate situation, to say the least. Thousands, tens of thousands of starving prisoners that needed to be attended to, the risk of disease that hadn't been addressed yet, the hundreds of Germans to hold as prisoners. Having someone as truly unhinged as Lieutenant Walsh be around in an environment this sensitive, well, it, it, it makes what eventually happened even less surprising. Since Walsh was still in command, he and I Company continued their sweep through Dachau, continuing to be exposed to the horrors of the camp. Eventually, they reached a hospital building that contained dozens of Germans, some Wehrmacht, some SS, with many of the SS trying to disguise themselves as Wehrmacht soldiers and many of both groups pretending to be injured. As Private First Class John Lee, who we quoted earlier, remembered, quote, Some of them were faking it. They put bedclothes on and were hoping we'd bypass the hospital and leave them there. Some were on crutches, feigning injury, unquote. These fakers were actually pointed out by the handful of Dachau inmates who remembered the faces of their tormentors quite well, understandably so, making them especially useful in picking out SS men, one of whom was understandably punched in the face by one of the inmates when the man claimed the inmate was lying about him being an SS man. This knowledge in hand, Lieutenant Walsh ordered the hospital completely evacuated and immediately had the SS men separated from the Wehrmacht as well as the hospital staff that had been present there. As Walsh himself testified during the later investigation by the Inspector General, quote, The reason the SS troops were segregated was that I was told the SS were in command of the camp and they would need special watching or be used for questioning. Unquote. The thing is, there's no evidence of this order's existence. In fact, as John C. McManus speculates, reasonably in my opinion, this order was probably given by Walsh himself and probably had very little to do with questioning them, especially considering what happened next. The SS men, once they had been corralled together, were herded to a nearby coal yard. Lieutenant Colonel Sparks, who was nearby, recalled, quote, The ground was covered with coal dust, and a narrow-gauge railroad track, laid on top of the ground, led into the area. The prisoners were being collected in the semi-enclosed area, unquote. The numbers oscillate depending on the source you're looking at, but it seems agreed upon that there were anywhere from 50 to 150 Germans herded into that coal yard. They were told to stand back against the eight-foot L-shaped wall that encircled the coal yard and to keep their goddamned hands raised to speculate what was likely being said at them. Lieutenant Walsh had another lieutenant from M Company, a Daniel Drain, set up his machine gun team, which consisted of a private named William Curtin acting as the gunner and a private named Martin Sedler acting as the loader. Drain left a coal yard after that, essentially handing command of his men with the machine gun over to Walsh during these crucial minutes. Curtin, covering the lined-up German SS men with his machine gun, would later recall Walsh leaning down and coldly telling him that he was going to shoot the machine gun while Walsh lined up some BAR gunners to do the same. There's disagreement, as there often is, when it comes to human memory about how things started. Lieutenant Colonel Sparks remembered a more benign atmosphere, one of Germans being corralled, following the orders being shouted at them, and that's about it. However, based on 
many other primary sources and accounts, John C. McManus describes a much more quote-unquote malevolent atmosphere in which several of the SS men refused to raise their hands when ordered to, and some even moved to stand closer to the Americans facing them, basically staring them down in probably one of the most dangerous games of chicken you can imagine. The moment that everything seemed to snap, the jump-scare moment of the horror film, if you will, was when Private Curtin, the machine gunner, did what any machine gunner would do and load the lead round into the chamber of his thirty cal, snapping back the charging handle with a loud clack. This movement and noise caused the SS men, likely thinking they were about to be shot, to essentially spring into action and start approaching the Americans facing them, trying to intimidate them further into stopping, most likely. And they did outnumber them likely 10 to 1, if not more, if the high numbers of 150 are correct. This, unsurprisingly, made a number of the Americans feel threatened, and perhaps a few of them even more justified. Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sparks was watching the beginning of this unfold and would later recall the following, quote, After watching for a few minutes, I started for the confinement area. After I had walked away for a short distance, I hear the machine gun guarding the prisoners open fire. I immediately ran back to the gun and kicked the gunner off the gun with my boot. I then grabbed him by the collar and said, What the hell are you doing? He was a young private, about 19 years old, and was crying hysterically. His reply to me was, Colonel, they were trying to get away. I doubt that they were. But in any event, he killed about 12 of the prisoners and wounded several more. Unquote. The large group of SS men, quote-unquote, trying to get away, as the young private in Sparks' account put it, Private Curtin in this case, it wasn't the whole picture of what had happened, especially when looking at the other sources. Lieutenant Bill Walsh had, in fact, initiated the shooting by pulling out his pistol, firing, and shouting, let him have it. The BAR team opened up, as did the other Americans using their M1 carbines pumping round after round after round into the crowd of captured SS men, ripping many of them to shreds. The machine gunner who I mentioned, Private William Curtin, would later estimate that he unloaded three long bursts with the 30 cal he'd set up, and that arguably led to everything spiraling out of control as quickly as it did. Many of the Germans actually dove forward to hit the ground, as they'd been trained to do when pinned by fire. A survivor, Oberscharführer Hans Lindberger, would later recall doing this, and as he did, hearing the German man behind him scream, "'The pigs are shooting at my stomach.'" before he was gunned down, splashing Lindberger's head and face with his gore. Other prisoners in the group actually began screaming and pleading that they were not actually German and not even SS. And this, especially the first part, is certainly possible given the wide swath of non-Germans serving in not just the Wehrmacht, but also the SS, especially by the end of the war. And funny enough, that'll be a story we'll be looking at one day. Regardless, this did nothing to stop the shooting, though it's doubtful any of the Americans could even understand the men's pleas, let alone hear them over the flood of gunfire. When the shooting was over, the prisoners were, as John C. McManus writes, quote, laying in clumps along the wall, unquote. And in such a way that it was hard to determine who was still alive and who wasn't. In total, we don't actually know how many prisoners died at the hands of the Americans. It's a hotly debated topic with historians, though 
I think John C. McManus makes a good case for how the majority of the prisoners at the coal yard probably lived. Lieutenant Sparks' bodyguard, Private First Class Frank Egger, recalled most of the prisoners standing when the order was given for them to get up after the shooting was over, with only a handful being unable to walk. However, it's likely that some of the men died thanks to American medics. Understandably, one might think, but American medics who refused to treat them for their wounds. In addition, two of the men killed themselves by cutting their own throats. Lieutenant Sparks later estimated that his men killed somewhere between 30 and 50 of the prisoners, that highball 50 being what people usually cite when trying to talk about the killings of Germans at the hands of the Americans at Dachau. However, as John C. McManus notes, a member of the Inspector General section that would conduct the investigation named Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Whitaker is probably the most reliable source when it comes to the hard numbers of who was killed at Dachau by the Americans. He visited the camp a few days later and found 17 bodies in the coal yard riddled with American bullets. However, McManus notes that the number is likely a bit higher, closer to between 20 and 25, thanks to the men who had been mortally wounded, carried away, and also, like I mentioned, refused treatment by the American medics. And all of this lasted maybe 15, 30 seconds, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. It was seemingly over before it even began, and that was likely why Private Curtin, the machine gunner, was crying hysterically when Lieutenant Colonel Sparks yanked him off the gun. Firing your gun at advancing troops who can shoot back is one thing. Tearing unarmed men apart who are basically standing in a line is something else, even if it seems like they're approaching you in a hostile manner. They don't have weapons, and they are your prisoner after all. It's an execution. It was likely a very dreamlike experience for a lot of these men who did the firing. I can easily imagine it that way. I suspect it was a lot like being woken up suddenly, like those scare pranks that you can find on YouTube. Or if you've ever been unfortunate enough to be pranked by your friends waking you up suddenly. Regardless, Sparks' arrival on the scene seemed to bring everyone back to reality, especially after he drew his pistol and fired it into the air over and over again and yelled at the men that there would be no more firing unless he gave the direct order. Nevertheless, the damage had been done. Order and discipline had fully disintegrated. As Lieutenant Daniel Drain, the man who'd brought Lieutenant Walsh the 30 cal would later recall to the Inspector General during the investigation of this incident, quote, This is not the American way of fighting. Unquote. Other men in Lieutenant Colonel Sparks's battalion had their own impressions of what happened in the coal yard. Corporal Henry Mills, a recon and intelligence man who didn't take part in the shootings, but had witnessed them, would later recall, quote, Jeez, we've come over here to stop this bullshit, and now here we've got somebody doing the same thing. He'd later add, quote, Once they were prisoners, they were prisoners. They were unarmed. You can't shoot them. You can't do that. That's an atrocity. Unquote. Another witness to the killings, Lieutenant Harold Moyer, had a different take when being questioned by the Inspector General, stating the following, quote, I believe every man in the outfit who saw those boxcars was justified in meeting out death as a punishment of the Germans who were responsible, unquote. Lieutenant Colonel Sparks, our main witness, would later recall a more mixed reaction. 
likely stemming from guilt or desire for absolution over his failure in leadership that day. Quote, I never like to see people killed unnecessarily, no matter what their stripe is or what they have done. We did kill some people there, I consider unnecessarily. Given the circumstances, well, I'm sorry about it. But it was just one of those things that no one could control. Actually, the people that we killed died a much easier death than the people they tortured and killed. So in a way, we were kinder to them than they were to the people that they murdered. But, at the same time, I never countenanced any unnecessary killing at any time during the war. Unquote. There are obvious problems with all of these takes, as well as valid points. For Corporal Henry Mills to compare the morality of the reprisal killings to the morality of what the Nazis were doing to their victims feels like a cheap false equivalence, frankly, though he does also make a good point about people who have been taken prisoner needing to be afforded the protection that they deserve. It's the rules of war. Lieutenant Harold Moyer suggesting that seeing the death train so thoroughly broke the men of the 45th that it justified or at least explained their actions is a fair point. It's likely true. But for him to suggest that they were punishing the perpetrators of the death train itself stretches credulity. As John C. McManus notes in Hell Before Their Very Eyes, quote, The SS troopers in the coal yard were almost certainly not responsible for the death train, unquote. And Lieutenant Colonel Sparks' waffling on the issue, like I suggested a moment ago, suggests more about his feelings of his own leadership, or lack thereof, on April 29, 1945, especially when you focus on the crucial phrase, it was just one of those things that no one could control. Unfortunately for Sparks, his job was to try and control the situation. And his failure to relieve the main perpetrator of the reprisal killings, Lieutenant William Walsh, despite knowing his unhinged mental-emotional state, reflects that failure. So what about the perpetrators? How did they feel? As we saw, the machine gunner Private Curtin was completely broken by the experience at minute one, weeping and saying they were trying to escape, not really comprehending what he had just done. But Lieutenant Bill Walsh, the head of this thing, showed no remorse, even decades later, and you can even feel some sympathy for his thoughts on the matter, especially with that charming New England accent he had that I just have playing in my mind every time I read one of his quotes. Walsh would reflect the following, quote, Some goddamn day when I go to hell with the rest of the SS, I'm going to ask them how the hell they could do it. I don't think there was any SS guy that was shot or killed in the defense of Dachau that wondered why he was killed. I think they all knew goddamn well right why some of them were killed down at the camp. Goddamn well right. Unquote. But it was Lieutenant Walsh's subordinate, Private First Class John Lee, who we've quoted a few times before, and who fired his rifle into the mass of prisoners at Walsh's signal in the coal yard, who provides, in my opinion the most honest and introspective recollection and reflection on the Dachau Liberation Reprisal Massacre. Quote, I didn't really feel good about what happened there. But also, I have to admit, I felt there was a certain amount of revenge. Even though these may not have been the men who perpetrated this sort of thing, at least you were paying back for these people what happened to them. But I realize you can't resolve it by doing that. It was wrong what happened there. But you had to have been there to see what we saw. You've probably seen the pictures. They're just pictures to you. 
You've never walked up on something like that. It knocked you off your equilibrium. It's part of war, but nobody prepared us for it. Unquote. I saw the bodies on the ground. Too many to count. surrendered. We took their guns. We lined them up. You know your movies, especially your movies by Martin Scorsese and the ones that star Leonardo DiCaprio. You'll probably recognize that clip from Scorsese's underrated psychological thriller sort of horror masterpiece Shutter Island, adapted from the Dennis Lehane novel of same name. What you just heard is a dramatized account of the Dachau liberation and its reprisal killings, and it shouldn't be taken as gospel by any means. It's heavily dramatized. A lot of creative liberties are taken. However, it illustrates something truly challenging, the core of what's made this episode so challenging for me and what's essentially required me to give you all that lecture I gave, an interesting one, I hope, but that lecture I gave on the nature of dehumanization and how that's held within the true story dramatized by this clip. The challenge is that I've spent all this time explaining dehumanization in the context of where the Nazis were coming from, only to realize that that explanation can somewhat apply to the reprisal killings in the coal yard. 
And at the end of the day, the biggest challenge is finding empathy with this simple fact that this story is about the mass murder of a group of Nazis. It might all make sense after all the hell we've gone through discussing Dachau and the Holocaust, the crimes that occurred at Dachau and in the Holocaust, and the nature of racialized hatred itself. It might make sense that, even if it wasn't exactly true, that something like that captivating scene in Shutter Island happened. The Nazis had it coming, right? Putting aside the fact that they were Nazis, which is good enough for most people, these were Nazis stationed at Dachau, a notorious concentration camp full of brutal human experimentation, slave labor that usually resulted in death, and just straight-up mass murder. This is like finding a murderer or a rapist or a child molester at the scene of the crime in the middle of whatever horrible thing he or she was doing. And yet, it's just not that simple, is it? If I've learned anything from the bafflingly, impressively intense Jocko Willink through his work and discussions on the nature of leadership and discipline, I've learned that if you've allowed yourself to lose the dispassion required to get the job done, a lot of things can go wrong. We're sitting here in late 2019 as of this recording, comfortably shooting ideas back and forth via social media or maybe on the phone or in person with friends if we're lucky. We have, I have, the luxury to play armchair philosopher and ponder whether or not there are ethics and morals at play when you execute men found at the scene of their crime, even if they were just complicit and not responsible. But when you're a soldier, when you have a duty... You don't have that luxury. Yes, there are times when you should step up, brandish your morals like a shield, and protect the weak, like what happened during massacres like Me Lai or Sand Creek with Hugh Thompson or Silas Soule, respectively covered by fellow podcasters Daryl Cooper and Daniele Bellelli. But brandishing your morals, that's only necessary when there's a failure of leadership. And with the liberation of Dachau... Even if its scale was shrunk to a fraction of the carnage caused by American soldiers in Vietnam or in Cheyenne lands outside of Denver, and even if those being massacred are Nazis, the liberation of Dachau and its subsequent reprisals by unhinged American troops, as understandable as their unhingement might have been, represents a failure of leadership. A failure of ethics, though? Morality? Of goodness? Jesus, I I don't know, guys. I really don't know. Liberation and the justice brought to any and all Nazi war criminals was an absolute moral necessity. An absolute moral necessity, without question. Who would argue against that? I wouldn't. Whatever you think of the Americans' actions that day, you can't deny that it was and is seen as a kind of corrective for the crime done upon the Jews and other prisoners of Dachau. But when you read the story of the Dachau liberation reprisals, it calls specifics into question. It needs to, especially if we're going to pretend we have a baseline for morality. Did the camp commandant deserve to die since he facilitated everything? What about the guards that didn't directly enable the mass killing? and perhaps even did favors for some of the prisoners, like slipping them food, keeping them alive just in time for the Americans to show up? Or what about the non-Jewish prisoners that cooperated and arguably helped facilitate the mass extermination of their Jewish counterparts? 
where does the line get drawn? Who decides where it gets drawn? I don't know. I really don't know. And part of me suspects that not knowing, along with poor... No, no, that doesn't actually do it justice. A complete lack of appropriate leadership, as Jocko Willink would likely attest, is what led to extrajudicial murder of people who could reasonably be labeled as war criminals. When you can't easily wrap your mind around the morality of something, you search for the moral meaning, usually frantically. It's partly why online debates, hell, even real-life debates, become so heated. People just do not know and don't like not knowing. They really don't know where they fall on the moral spectrum about everything. Anyone who says that they do is either a crazed zealot of some kind or a flat-out liar. For every nine hypothetical or even real-life moral certainties they have, there will always be at least one that they have no answer for. And this story of the American executioners at Dachau is one of those times for me. So did the Nazis murdered at Dachau deserve what they had coming? Yes. Sure. Maybe? That's the thought process for me. Yes, sure, maybe. I mean, it makes me think of that scene in Lord of the Rings, Fellowship specifically, where Frodo and Gandalf are conferring in the minds of Moria and catch sight of Gollum following them. Frodo says it's a pity that Bilbo hadn't killed Gollum when he had the chance, and Gandalf, in typical grumpy, grouchy wizard fashion, says to Frodo that many that live deserve death and that some that die deserve life. But then he asks Frodo, can you give it to them? And when Frodo has no answer, Gandalf says, then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. The uncertainty Frodo felt when interrogated by Gandalf on this point is the uncertainty that I feel, and that I bet at least some of you feel listening right now. This is why my thought process on the murders at Dachau is, yes, sure, maybe. I mean, what if the Nazis had been executed after going through a legitimate, non-show trial and were found guilty of more than just culpability and the banality of evil kind of way? But how is that any different? Well, the difference as I've been suspecting, is the process. So what does that process add when heaps of starved, stinking corpses are found spilling out of trains and piled up within the gates of Dachau? The evil is obvious, without question, and yet we, as in humanity, have seen evil done on that level, maybe not in terms of scalar deliberation, but we've seen evil like this done before. And... We've gone after the perpetrators of that evil in just as blunt of terms as the American executioners at Dachau, imprisoning them and executing them. But we've also established a process that leads to these conclusions. You might say that when facing true evil, that this process is just a pointless formality, but honestly, this process is part of civilization itself. It's partly what makes civilization work. A process in which we carefully observe and judge the horrors inflicted by one human being upon another and determine the appropriate punishment rationally and methodically rather than emotionally and instantaneously. Do we abandon that just because we know both then and now 
that these men had done or been involved in doing far greater evil before we encountered them? That process may seem like a formality, but that formality is largely what's allowed you to say where that line is and that tells you who deserves punishment and who doesn't. As our parents and teachers like to tell us as children, you can't have both. I know I spent the better part of almost three hours in my last episode filling your head with my dumb opinions and however long this episode on my own personal reflections. I'm going to have to leave you, though, with something far less satisfying and final with this one. Because despite everything, despite the valid moral points made for either case, for either side in this grand debate of ethics, summary execution or legitimate trial in this case, despite those points, despite my own self-reflection, despite reading, listening, and even saying that well-tread and appropriate quote from Gandalf the Grey, I just come to the same conclusion. I simply do not know. I think it's safe to say again that there is no way this story is going to make anyone who listens to it feel good. Maybe those who can experience vicarious catharsis by hearing about these undisciplined executions will feel okay, but I'm willing to bet most of you are going to feel just as... just wrecked as I did and still do by this story. And not just because of the executions, but because of what had been happening for years leading up to that moment of 15 to 30 seconds of carnage. I struggled with this because I'm one of the folks who is of the belief that when discussing the Holocaust, no happy ending can ever be earned. It does the victims and even the survivors a disservice, which partly explains why I see films like Schindler's List or life is beautiful as insufficient in the case of the former and even borderline insulting in the case of the latter. It's also why I prefer, well, much bleaker cinematic representations of the Holocaust, like The Gray Zone, which offers no such hope or silver lining. This story I've told of Dachau and the suffering it facilitated of the reprisal massacre by American troops, none of that deserves a happy ending either. It's a story of human suffering that enters the realm of bland statistics thanks to its sheer scale and then the realm of numbness thanks to the constant, churning, industrialized barbarism it all represents, only to end in mass despair by the camp's liberators and a complete breakdown in discipline leading to mass summary executions that probably weren't all that justified to begin with. It sucks. It's the kind of ending only rivaled by that of a Cormac McCarthy novel to beat my favorite dead horse. And yet, I can't help myself but try. Maybe this attempt is just for me. But I'd like to think this pseudo-silver lining is for you as well. We do hear time and again, and for good reason, that the reason we study and talk about the Holocaust, why we pour over all of the documents, the artifacts, the literature, why we spend an afternoon in Washington, D.C., looking at the horror wrought by Nazi Germany. The reason we do these things is simple, to never forget. We've heard that many times, many times, and it's true. But I have a problem with that because I think it's too simple, too simplistic even. It places too much faith on the individual human mind. 
Most people, including even some of the liberators, as you probably heard earlier, would rather put these horrors out of their mind as fast as possible and just get on with their day. And I can't blame them. But I'm not like most people, and neither are a lot of you listening to this podcast right now who stuck with me through all this. We are gluttons for punishment. We're gluttons for suffering. We're gluttons for misery. We're gluttons for evil. But when you're most people, you just want to move on with your day and remain grateful that this kind of evil didn't happen to you. That's not never forgetting, though. But I also recognize that it would not only be unproductive, but probably even a little sadistic to force people to remember the Holocaust as often as humanly possible. They're already shutting down for the sake of very understandable self-preservation, Who the hell would want to be inundated with this stuff, especially when it's on the scale of millions of people? And like I said earlier in the story, those are numbers which long, long, long ago became meaningless thanks to our relatively primitive mammalian brains that can't really empathize beyond about 100 people. How can we expect most people, let alone civilization itself, to remember something and learn lessons from it when it isn't in their mental and emotional stability's best interest to even do so? I'll tell you what we do. We tell stories. And not only that, we don't tell stories that caress and stroke and coddle people or just make them feel miserable for no reason. We tell people stories that challenge, that give pause and that forced self-reflection. If the human being is a self-serving creature, and I believe it is, make the memory of the Holocaust about the people who learn about it. Make it about them. Make it about their beliefs, their feelings, their choices. And what better way to do that is there than to place them in an American GI's moccasins, to use a Dan Carlinism, so that they can walk a mile or two up to the gates of Dachau, past the death train filled with starved skeletal corpses stacked like cordwood, past the discarded prisoners both alive and dead, reeking of disease, filth, and death, watching as some of them electrocute themselves on the fences trying to reach out and touch you in the euphoria of their freedom, and then finally up to the surrendering groups of SS men, the men who facilitated this horror, or at least complied with it, which forces you to ask yourself the ultimate question— What would you do? What would you do now that these men's lives were in your hands? Nothing? Something? Could you live with that choice? Why or why not? What if that choice was wrong? How do you know it was wrong? Force people to ask these questions of themselves in the context of liberating a settlement of death And they may do and say a lot of things. A lot of things. And these will be things that may or may not square with your own moral compass. But I will tell you this much. They won't forget.
I want to take a second to thank the supporters of History Impossible who supported the podcast at the $10 level on Patreon.com. Thank you very much to Trevor Lindborg, Molly Pan, PJ Rader, and Emily Schmidt. If you want to support History Impossible at the $10 level like these fine folks, make sure to visit www.patreon.com slash historyimpossible and make a donation of whatever level you're comfortable with. Thank you.